Blog Talk Radio. Diabetes Late Night. Manager. 
Our next song is one of her biggest hits. It was written by Adrian Anderson and Isaac Hayes. Yes, that Isaac Hayes. Uh, the two toured together in 1977. He wrote the music to the song, and she played it for her producer on this album, who was Barry Manilow. Uh, Barry recruited his lyricist, Adrian Anderson, to write the words to this Isaac Hayes tune. Here's Deja Vu, courtesy of Sony Music. Love that tune. Welcome back to Diaries Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. We're playing Dionne Warwick all night long and songs from her 1979 album entitled Dion. Uh, we're also talking about living a long and healthy life with diabetes. On average, diabetes will shorten life expectancy by 4.6 years for people with diabetes at the age of 50 and older, according to Very Well Health website. But you don't have to be average, right? You're diabetic. No one's average who's listening to this show. Many people with diabetes um, don't take their medications correctly. So following your doctor's orders is one step to beating the odds of a, a long and lovely life. Also, many people aren't living healthy who are living with diabetes. So now is the time to be different. Don't skip your health screenings, practice good nutrition, stay healthy, do a virtual dance party. And joining me to talk more about this topic is our own Lorraine Brooks. Hello, Lorraine. Hi, Max. How are you? Good. Welcome to the show. How is everything going Thank for you, you uh, uh, with the pan epidemic? Going, yes, I know. Everything is going very well. I'm I'm well. I'm not uh, coughing or having any symptoms. Uh, this is week eight for me um, in being in self-quarantine. So uh, things are going well. I'm keeping myself busy and um, trying to stay focused and stay positive. And have you still been cooking? Last time we talked, you were, you know, busy every day trying to recreate uh, one of your favorite recipes in more of a healthier way or healthful way. Yes. I, in, in fact, yesterday I made some chicken tikka masala, which is one of my favorite Indian dishes. And... Um, it was pretty good, if I do say so myself. Uh, taking a day off today, I didn't do any cooking today. But, uh, yeah, that's one of the ways that I'm choosing to stay busy and try and stay healthy, and it's been interesting to get some uh, feedback from some of my friends online, and everybody's enjoying the pictures that I've been taking. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting in all of my creativity. I'm taking pictures, I'm cooking, I'm posting them, I'm... Um, staying up with my diabetes care, so it's all good. 
So what do you think about this um, living a long life with diabetes? There are a couple of people on Instagram wanting to discuss the possibility tonight. Uh, I saw that an educator in one of the magazines I was reading for the American Association of Diabetes Educators said that for every, uh, every individual, diabetes is going to progress differently. Once they have the diagnosis and decide to take action, whether the action is just behavioral or they uh, do some other change with their medications or lifestyle or just even a quality of life, they're going to have a different progression. What do you think about that? Um, I think that's, that, that's probably true because, you know, um, I know that my situation is very different than other people I know who have diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. So I, I would have to say that's true. You know, sometimes I used to compare myself to other people and I used to uh, ask people a lot of questions. How do they do this and what are they doing about that and how come they have that situation going on? And then I had I realized at some point that I, I really can't compare myself to other people because I'm not like other people and everybody has their own methods and their own doctors and, that you know, doctors may differ in in terms of what medications they prescribe and what have you. I stopped comparing myself to other people a long time ago, and I just decided to focus on me. And I think it's been better, you know, and I, I've been doing pretty well. I, I don't I, I don't want to jinx myself, but, you know, I've, I've had diabetes almost 40 years now, and um, I, I really have to say I don't have any major complications going on. And when I go to my doctor, sometimes I, I look around, in the waiting room to see, you know, some of the other patients, and they look like they're about my age, and some people even look younger than me. And I can see that, you know, they have some other situations going on. And um, so I know that everybody has a different course, and, and I think it's important not to compare ourselves to other people. I, I think that's really uh, – it doesn't do anybody any any good to compare yourself. You don't know what somebody else is experiencing or why. You're right. And another person who never compared themselves is Dionne Warwick. And so tonight's challenge for you with the poetry was to kind of look at her long career because it's been an iconic uh, 60 years of just different music and she somehow has mastered every genre throughout the decades. And coming up, I'll be talking to Fonzie Thornton more about that. But uh, So the challenge for you tonight was to try to use some of this Dionne Warwick, uh, this career longevity, and infuse it with how maybe someone with diabetes could look at longevity, too, in an inspirational way. And I'm, I'm dying to see, as a huge uh, Dionne Warwick fan, if you were able to rise to the t- task at hand and take the <laughs> challenge. Well, um, i got to say that at first I wasn't sure what to do. But I do love Dionne Warwick. I love her music. I love her voice. I've always been a big fan. Um, I've always been a big fan of Burt Backrack and his music. And I heard her interviewed once many, many years ago with with uh, Burt Backrack. And he was saying that she was the only person who he felt could really do justice to his music. And uh, I, I agree with that. I just adore her. So when I sat down to write this poem, I thought, you know, let me try to incorporate myself and diabetes and Dionne Warwick all together. So I hope it works. It's called, What's It All About? Is it just for the moment we live, or shall we plan for what's ahead? 
Shall we look to stay empowered, choosing hope instead of dread? Diabetes notwithstanding, we can choose the healthy way, and we can say a little prayer to get us going every day. I'll turn my house into a home and look my illness in the eye. I want to make my choices count, to walk and hold my head up high. For me, it's almost 40 years I've lived with diabetes now. So far, I'm doing very well in keeping my numbers nice and low. Anyone who had a heart would understand the struggles faced, and anyone who wants to help is welcomed in my private space. I never want to walk on by and miss the pleasures to enjoy. I want to reach a ripe old age, so healthy measures I employ. Exercise is fun and good, vegetables and fruits and meat. Taking all my insulin covers all the foods I eat. I thrive in my community. I've lived to 68 and more. I couldn't do it by myself. I'm grateful that's what friends are for. Lorraine, I could not finish reading the poem without jumping up and down when you sent it to me. <laughs> this, to me, is like what we try to do. Like, you know, so many times for me, the music inspires the show. It inspires the guests mm-hmm. we're going to have on the show. It, you know, I, I want it, I want people to be able to listen to Dion and feel like they're not alone with their diabetes, that her voice is there, we're there with you. And tonight you really brought that all together. And also I just have to say, like, um, I love that we did it with Dionne Warwick because Luther Vandross was such a huge fan of Dionne Warwick. Mm-hmm. So yes. just having you take the time to do that just made me think of Luther, uh, especially because you referenced uh, a song they both made very popular with A House Is Not a Home. So I just uh, exactly. I felt like this was a full diva-betic moment tonight with this poem. I can't thank you enough. I I, I so appreciate you saying that, and I tried to do exactly that, incorporate the message and the people and the and the, the, the tone and um I thank you for suggesting that and I and I thank you for, for dedicating this show to Dionne Warwick because as I told you, she's one of my all time favorites. So this was a labor of love. Uh, fantastic job. Well you know, uh like I just said a minute ago, Luther was one of her biggest fans and coming up we're gonna be talking to Luther's good friend, singer, songwriter, vocal contractor, producer, Fonzie Thornton, such a great fan of the show, and we just love him so much. Um, so we're looking forward to talking more about the Luther Dion connection. But first, we're going to play a little bit more music. Our next song earned Dion Warwick the grand prize at the Tokyo Music Festival for Song of the Year. Here's a Barry Manilow-produced song, Feeling Old Feelings, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen.
Welcome back to the Ivy's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diabetic, and uh, I just wanted to let everyone know I got a text. Can you blog about Lorraine's poem? So, yes, we'll be posting that poem on the Diabetic blog tomorrow for you to read, which uh, I, I hope you enjoyed. Uh, you know, tonight we're talking about we're spotlighting Dionne Warwick, and we're talking about living a long and healthy life with diabetes. My next guest is singer, songwriter, producer, and vocal contractor whose career spans 40 years. He has sung backing vocals for some of the top artists uh, across many genres, including Luther Vandross. So let's welcome to the show my friend and colleague. Hello, Fonzie. How are you tonight? Hey, Rex. How are you? So nice to hear you. So nice to be here. Really good stuff. You know. Uh, thanks for joining us. It's such a uh, you know when we when we hit on these music uh, musical inspirations that are our part of the Lucas uh, Fandross history and legacy, I'd love to take a little time just to kind of explore the artist. And so I was so grateful that you could join us tonight and just talk a little bit about this because it is true that Luther was, she, had a, she has a lot of fans, but Luther might be one of the, her most famous fans. So tell us yeah. about this. Uh, why did he admire her singing and as a performer? And how did they actually meet? Okay, as, as you know, Max, my answers are never short, so jump in any place you want to to stop me. Before I do that, I want to say that poem that was read was so amazing. I really, really love that. So I'm glad you're going to be posting that because I would like to read it for myself. But Luther, um, Luther first became aware of Dionne Warwick um, in 1962 when Dion released uh, Don't Make Me Over. Um, the next single she did after that was anyone who had a heart. And I think it was 1963 that Luther went to the Brooklyn Fox Theater. Mary the K used to be giving shows there with lots of different artists on the bill. And Luther always tells the story that this woman came on stage, this tall, statuesque, dark-skinned woman who was singing this song, Anyone Who Had a Heart. And he was not familiar with the song. And he said, but what happened is in the moment she came on to sing, he felt like it was like one of those old black and white movies where a spotlight went on on one person and the spotlight went on on another person, and those were the only two people in the room. He always said about Dion um, that the texture and the tone of her voice is what moved him, like, instantly. And he always also said that the way that she affected him that day in the Brooklyn Fox theater is the way he wanted to affect people with his singing. I think that's the day he really decided that he really wanted to pursue a career in music after hearing Dion that day. That's incredible. And then, you know, so, so, um, so there he was in the audience and he saw her and, and just like you said, he idolized the way she did that and wanted to go further with his career. But then right. he took matters into his own hands and had some ingenuity in how he actually met her. Tell everyone yeah. how Luther Vandross met Dionne Warwick. Well, I, I know that the first time he met her, um, she had gone to a concert at Carnegie Hall that Sissy Houston was doing. And, of course, um, Dion, uh, Sissy Houston is Dion's aunt. Sissy Houston is Dion's mother's youngest sister. So Luther went to the concert, and Dion was backstage, and he was too nervous to say hello. It's like he was so he was such a big fan, and he was shaking in his boots. So he didn't really meet her that time. I think that the first time Luther may have met 
Met Dion to my knowledge. Hmm. I don't really know the answer to that one, Max. I know a lot of times where they intersected, but not the very first time that they met. I'm not really sure. Oh, I thought it was something like he pretended that he was a relative to her. Ah, he ah, went, ah, ah, okay. <laughs> okay, well, right? Did he kind of pretend to be yeah. like her cousin or something and got well, backstage and she said, I don't well, have a cousin a really, in Kalamazoo. Right, right. Well, that's a, that's a really funny story, Max, but I don't think that that was when they met. But that story was when we were in Listen, My Brother, which was a uh, which was a, a review that we were in out of the Apollo Theater run by a man named Pete Long, myself, Nat Adderley Jr., Robin Clark, Carlos Alomar, Luther Vandross. We were all in that review. We uh, were on Sesame Street, in fact, um, uh, the first two years that they ran Sesame Street, we did some appearances on there. So at any rate, Luther had gone away. Luther had left the group and had gone away to Kalamazoo, Michigan, to go to uh, to college. And the guy who was his um, his roommate, he had been, you know, Luther was doing music there and playing piano and singing, and um, he had told his roommate that Dion Warwick was his sister. And so, um, <laughs> in fact, one time he had Robin Clark call up on the phone and pretend to be Dion. So Luther had his roommate all in on this, right? So um, what happened is Dion came to the area to do a concert, and they had a radio contest for someone to win tickets. Come to find out Luther's roommate won the tickets to the concert. And he said, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm getting ready to go meet your sister. Of course, Luther was quaking in his boots. So the roommate did get a chance to go backstage and meet Dion. He said, oh, I know your brother. I know your brother. And she says, my brother? No, no, you, no, you don't. She, he says, his name is Luther. She says, Luther is a fake. So that was the first time that they came in contact, and she actually knew his name, although I don't think that that was the first time that they, they met personally. <laughs> I, I just think that's so funny. I mean, just to think that Luther Vandross kind of lied about being her brother, and then it, he got called out on it. But now, so let's just um, let's go in a little bit of this. What's going on here? So, in 1979, she released. She got signed to Clive Davis on Arista Records, and she released yeah. what would be considered her comeback album, which is the album we're playing tonight, Dion. Luther comes yeah. out and with his debut album in 1981, and he yeah. has on it. Uh, a song she made famous, A House is Not a Home. But unlike yeah. her version, he kind of slows down the arrangement and he in lengthens it to seven minutes. And, of course, most people have heard this song. Was there any discussion in this in this process about why he wanted to remake that song? Do you, know, do you have any information on just how House is Not a Home became the iconic Luther Vandross song that fans like myself think about all the time or play all the time? Well, you know, um, Luther had decided, you know, he was so intuitive and he was so into music. He was so into writing and he was such a, a big um, fan of great music. And Dion was one of his favorite artists. And I remember when he was um, recording the Never Too Much album, there was a point he said to me, he said, Fonzie, I got this really great idea. He said, I'm going to do a remake of House is Not a Home. He said, but I'm going to do it, I'm going to slow it way, way down into this really slow burn groove. And he said, I'm not even going to let you hear it until it's complete. So by the time I actually heard it, Frankie Crocker was playing it on 
on BLS. And in fact, Luther, I think, Houses Not a Home and Luther's Slow Jams, all the covers he did over the years, had a lot to do with um, instituting that Quiet Storm format, which became so big on BLS and so many other places. But I know for sure that he loved Houses Not a Home. He was really excited about doing it. And finally, um, there's a clip on the Internet. I don't know if it is. American Music Awards, but where he is singing House is Not a Home and Dion is in the, in the audience listening to him, just losing her mind, just with glee. I've heard Dion say, in fact, that she did the original version of House is Not a Home, but she credits Luther with the definitive version of House is Not a Home. All right, but then also, Fonzie, he goes on to cover more of her songs. So he does yes. Anyone Who Has Parts. Then he yes. ultimately, a few years later, produces an album for Dion. Um, yes. How many? I think it's called "How Many Times Can We Say Goodbye." Can we and say goodbye? Yeah. on that album, he writes a song for her entitled "So Amazing," and then yes. he decides to cover that song himself. So I'm just yes. curious, like in all those discussions over the years, why? You know, why? I, I mean, I'm getting the understanding that he loved the way she interpreted his her lyrics. And he yeah. kind of, as you said, tried to uh, embody that in his own way and bring that yeah. to life. But it's just fascinating to me how he keeps drawing from her for inspiration going forward. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, the idea that he uh, would make remake so amazing is kind of interesting after writing it for her. Absolutely. Well, you know, Dion is such an amazing instrument. I think that um, when... Burt Bacharach, I, I always read that Burt Bacharach um, first heard her when she was singing background on, uh, because she was originally a part of the Drinkard family singers over here in New Jersey. Um, her, um, and she had, she and some of the siblings, some of the relatives were doing backup work in New York and Burt Bacharach heard her singing on this uh, song called Mexican Divorce that the drifters uh you know, had, had made, and he appreciated the tonality in her voice, the clarity of her voice, and just the way that she she had such an elegance to what she did, and it's something that Luther picked up on as well. I think the thing, the thing about Dion is she's such an amazing instrument because the thing about the songs that she sang, particularly the Burt Backrack songs, the songs she did with Barry Manilow, the songs she, she did with the Gibbs Brothers, you know, they were all songs they had amazingly intricate melodies sometimes. Sometimes the rhythms were really intricate, but she was always super articulate. The tonality of her voice was amazing because she had a she wasn't a big hardcore R and B singer like Etta James or like Aretha, but she had that gospel inflection in her voice. So sometimes you hear you can hear Dion singing in a soft, beautiful, elegant tone and then you'll hear her belting and she has a certain reach in her voice. She always sounds like she's going up for that note, and she might not make it, and she always nails it. And that's part of the magic of what I think people love about her because she was, as a vocalist, she was always a winner. You know, she was, um, Dion definitely had a huge pop career, you know, um, I think maybe maybe second to only like Aretha or something like that. She had like a really huge pop career, even though Aretha was a very big R&B artist. But Luther, um, what he always loved about Dion that I know is Dion had that magic thing that drew you to her. When you 
listen to Dion, you couldn't hear a pin drop in the room. She really brought everybody's ears to what she was seeing. And Luther definitely adopted something from her about that, you know, because he was also a believer in the beauty of the melody, in the beauty of the tone, in the dynamic, and how loud something was, how soft something was. And I think that Dion was really one of his major influences in terms of how he presented his own his own vocals, you know. Okay, so I have one more question, then we're going to get to the fans, because we have a, a sure. Floyd is on the uh, Floyd, Frank Floyd Jr. is on the phone with a question, and then that's oh, we wow. also have Keith and Lewis tuning in from Fandross. So last question, because it kind of comes full circle. So here she, he's, he's been doing record, he's been, um, Luther's been performing songs to be on Warwick, but then in, in an in interesting uh, fate, her son brings Luther a song. So tell yes. us a little bit about the, what this final connection between Dion and, and uh, Luther Vandross. Who is yes. David Elliott? What, what did he do? It's really amazing. Uh, her son, David Elliott, had written a song for Luther, or I don't know if he wrote it for Luther or if it was just something that he wrote that he played for Luther called Here and Now. And I was in L.A. riding in a car with Luther, and he was saying, well, um, he said, I got this song from Dionne Warwick's son. I said, oh, really? He says, let me play it for you. He said, this is going to be a big hit for me. I said, okay, fine. So he played it, and I listened to it. And when it was done, I wasn't overwhelmed with it. I wasn't really overwhelmed with it. He said, he said you're not really getting it, are you? He said, but I got this idea for this bridge. I'm going to add this bridge starting here, starting now. And when he added that, it made the entire, after I heard him when we recorded it, it made the entire song come alive. So it's really funny. Luther was so modest, too, and such good friends with Dion and with her son that he never even took any of the songwriting credit on here and now, even though he definitely had a lot to do with, you know, finishing the song and bringing it up to what we know. I just have to interject one other thing, which is one of my own favorite stories. Um, when So Luther got nominated for Best R&B Vocal that year for Here and Now. And he calls me up. And that year, the Grammys were going to be in New York. And he calls me up. He says, Fonzie, he says, come with me to the Grammys. He says, I'm not going to win anyway. So just come with me and hang out, right? So we're sitting there in the audience and Regina Bell and Michael Bolton say, and for Best R&B Vocal Male, Luther Vandross. And we just, we just killed ourselves because he really didn't think he was going to win. And after having been friends since we were 14 years old, we would be sitting there with him when he won his first Grammy for here and now. You know, so all of these roads lead back to Dion and his connection with Dion. <laughs> it is, it's an amazing story, and I appreciate you being here. Okay, the fans have some questions for you, which we're just going to go through really quickly. But before we sure. do that, I just want to say, uh, it was the NAACP Image Awards that Luther serenaded Dion Warwick with a house is not cool. home. And you can find that on YouTube, fans, if you want to see that. Okay, so Jane from the U.K., who's one of the Facebook uh, Luther Vandross group administrators, wants to know if Dion and Luther had ever planned to sing another duet after um, how many times can we say goodbye? Do you, have, do you know if that's true or false? I don't know if I, I don't know if that was the case, but Dion was definitely one of his favorite singers. You know, he used to always uh, like he was on Solid Gold with her. He he uh, hosted the Soul Train Awards with her, so their friendship was always moving forward, and their musical friendship was. So he 
really might have possibly come back to Dion's for another duet at some point. Okay, and now we've got, uh, we're going to bring in a fan, uh, Frank Floyd Jr. Uh, you're talking to Fonzie Thornton on Diabetes Late Night. You've got a question for Fonzie. Let's uh, please ask it now, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Yes, yes. First of all, Fonzie, I don't know if you remember me, but, um, you know, I'm the son of Frank Floyd Sr., who was uh, a session singer. Brother, my, my darling exactly. brother, Exactly. God bless you, man. So nice to hear you. Hey, Exactly. Great to hear you, too. But I'll get right to it. Um, and that's the reason why I'm calling. Of course, your family, um, Luther was family yes. and Dion was yes. family. And that and that's yes. really what I wanted to just remark on. I'm not sure how much of the backstory you got into, but my father um, sang with Larry Steele in A Smart Affair yes. in yes. Atlantic City, New Jersey, way, way back in the day. And that's how I think the Dion connection came into him and his life. It was back in the late 60s. I and see. Um, yeah. and so yeah. then Dion snatched up. That was with a group called the Constellations, and okay. uh, Zach Zach Sanders, another uh, singer, was in that That's group. Right. So my father my father was in that stable of session singers. Yes, um, yes, and, yes. And and Luther came into that fold, and everyone was family. But the, but these people were closer. I mean, I grew up calling Dion, um, you know, my godmother growing up, and so. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's that's really really what I wanted to ask you about is if you knew like how far back like when they met and things like that. I had always thought it was from those session days, you know, from yes. the New York days. And, and I think Luther was in that. Um, what was that single? Um, it was like uh, it was like an all like an all American kind of thing. Okay. Um, gee, was, I don't, re- don't don't really know the answer, Frank. But you know what? It's amazing because the New York session world was so incredible. You know, your father and I did so much work together, so much singing during those days, as he did with Luther, as we all did together. So the thing is, it's just to hear you speak of him just gives me such a charge today. He was such a great, great guy and such a funny dude and could sing his face off. So it's just, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. just, 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 but yeah, I just, great. Like I, like I said, it was just family, so I wanted to be in the room when we're talking about family because it's a family right. reunion. Right, right, right. Well, thank you for saying hello, <laughs> Frank. Good, good. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Frank Floyd Jr., for calling in and, and asking that question. Fonzie, it's hard to believe we're out of time. You're going to have to come back because we are yes. going to play that album that Luther produced for Dionne Warwick in one of the upcoming shows. Thank you so much. I have a, a fun surprise for you because um, – we all know that Luther loved to cover songs, and so did Dionne Warwick, not only on yes. Solid Gold, but also on her album. So here on this 1979 release entitled Dion, she covered the box tops hit from 1967. It was a first and biggest record. Here's the number one song. It was the number one song in the U.S. and Canada. Here's Dionne Warwick's version of The Letter, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. I love it. Give me a ticket on it. All right, that was a virtual dance party. Welcome back to the Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Benick. My next guest has written more than a letter. 
I'm so excited. People ask me, like, what have you been doing during the pan epidemic? And I have to say I've been reading and listening to music. Uh, and two of my favorite books are Kitchens of the Great Midwest and The Lager Queen of Minnesota. And I'm so excited because the author is joining us tonight. So please welcome to Divey's Late Night, Jay Ryan Straddle. Hi, Jay Ryan. How are you? Hi, Max. Great to be here. Great show. Oh, I am such a fan of yours. Thank you for uh, doing this tonight. It's an it's incredible honor to have you on the show. Both of these books just put a huge smile on my face. I'm from Rochester, New York, and I oh. just found such a um, association with how you talk about the Midwest. So, and the women from the Midwest. It reminds me of my family and. There's just so many things in common uh, when I was reading these, and I, and I want people to go uh, get both of these books because they're really just enjoyable reads. But I want to go back because, you know, you just heard me talking to Fonzie Thornton yeah. about uh, Luther Vandross, and I had the great pleasure of working with Luther and seeing a genius in the music industry. I feel like in both of these books, you really focus on that genius in the food industry, and both of them are kind of – Fish on Water. So let's start with the um, first book, Kitchens of the Great Midwest, because you kind of create a character who in many ways isn't from a food family per se, but has this incredible talent in the kitchen and is able to um, transcend whatever her humble beginnings are in order to go much farther in it. So tell us a little bit about this book and the journey of the main character. Right, yeah. I grew up in a small town in Minnesota uh, called Hastings. It's on the Mississippi River between St. Paul and Red Wing, and not the kind of place a lot of people end up, <laughs> end up on vacation, usually on their way to a vacation elsewhere or <laughs> or just seeing you know another part of the world. So I was so impressed with the people I knew who grew up there who you know were inalienably uh, from Hastings or from small town, Dakota County, Minnesota, and you know, left to uh, pursue their dreams, but didn't necessarily burn that bridge. Just sort of broaden their world to include uh, their their origin, their hometown, but uh, managed to uh, occupy the larger world they always felt they belonged to. I, I felt that was true for me growing up there. I always wanted to be a, a writer and an author since I was a little boy, uh, growing up with parents who read and encouraged me to write. And uh, that said, I had a wonderful time growing up in my in my Midwest town, and I never wanted to leave it behind. Rather, I wanted to represent that world, and I wasn't often seeing characters like Eva or characters like Edith in fiction that much. I, in short, characters like the women I grew up with, uh, like my mom, like my grandmother, like my aunts, and. I really wanted to represent them in my fiction. And with Eva in particular, Eva represents the sort of person I wish I was, <laughs> someone who uh, had the bravery to pursue what it is they felt they were meant to do in life at a young age and found ways of integrating it uh, into their life from childhood through teenage years into their young adulthood. I didn't have the guts to start writing fiction seriously until my late 20s. <laughs> Uh, and even then, it was like six and years and of having her, short stories rejected. And yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Max. Go ahead, let's please. Talk yeah. a little bit about her journey because yeah, yeah. You and I, you know, the food culture, like you, you, 
grew up in the 70s, and I grew up in the early yeah. 70s, and really today's food culture and the food network oh, so and everything is so much more sophisticated. But back then, it really wasn't. Oh. And I love how her journey also kind of parallels the journey of yeah. the food industry. So talk yeah. a little bit about that, because that's what I found so fascinating, too, is just how she came um, you know, she started with these really humble beginnings and somehow wound up at the top of the heap in the foodie culture. Yeah, that was very intentional. I really wanted to tell the story of a lifetime that was spent uh, commensurate with the evolution of food consciousness and uh, availability and interest uh, in our society. It's it's remarkable how attitudes towards food and what we eat and how we eat have changed. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But you're absolutely right in asserting that the world I was born into in the mid-'70s was very different from the world we experience today, and I really wanted to tell the story of that evolution through the eyes of someone I might have known growing up in Minnesota. And I had Eva stop in a number of states and have contacts with people with a number of states throughout the Midwest and the Great Lakes region uh, as part of that story because I wanted it to tell a larger cultural story about the evolution of food in our society and well frankly it's 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 welcome to me what a what a long way it's come both in terms of availability of fresh produce uh interest in things like heritage varieties the fruit and vegetables that are uh uh that, that have originated in locations but have fallen by the wayside and are coming back thanks to certain conscientious farmers and and an interest in eating local, an interest in eating what's in season. And I wanted to uh, catalyze in Eva all of those impulses and all of those dreams and desires. So I was a young foodie growing up in my hometown, and uh, I grew up in a household where the mom's favorite butter was probably my mom, I'm sorry, my mom's favorite spice was probably butter. Uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> sorry, I turned that around. But we ate a lot of white and brown food. food. We had a lot of stuff in cream sauces, you know, a lot of Swedish-inspired <laughs> uh, cooking in my, uh, in my Minnesota hometown. And I knew there had to be another way. I knew there had to be food out there that was healthy and interesting and local. And uh, I managed to find that, but at the same time, I didn't want to totally leave behind the food of my upbringing. I wanted to kind of kind of harken back to it, and that's where things like the recipe for peanut butter bars comes in, which was my grandmother's recipe, and that recipe's in the book and in uh, Pat Prager's chapter. Um, so, yeah, in a way, I'm kind of trying to have it both ways, I, I, but that said, I do definitely feel like since the 1970s, we've come a long way, and it's welcome. Okay, well, this is my favorite moment, but um, in this book with Pat is, and <laughs> you should tell everyone, you did do, you researched uh, the recipes in this book going through old church cookbooks I read. Yep. And you did yep. mention how um, in another interview that I heard about you that you they had a lot of salads that were served without vegetables in them. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which we all know, anyone who's had an ambrosia salad knows that's true. So the yep. thing that is Jello lovely salad, about yeah. this is you, you you move us through the food culture, but you but Eva does not give up those roots. And so here we have Pat, who is the queen of the church. And you know, just, uh, our listeners know this. Every year I do a mystery podcast, and my character, oh, Mister Diva Bedek, competes in a bake off. And he's not he 
he's so ambitious to be healthy that he forgets about it needs to have a good taste. And I'm oh. Lorraine, who's a narrator, and other people always remind me why my kale hot cocoa isn't really going to be popular. But in this <laughs> chapter, I, I fell off my chair because here Pat is like the reigning champion in her church, and she makes the most delicious dessert bars, which you're going to explain what that is to our listeners in a minute. And she takes them to the heart of a foodie competition. So without giving too much away, just tell us a little bit about that scene because it's so delightful to read, and I just I loved it. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a real fish-out-of-water moment, you know, where this, uh, where this woman won her church uh, bake-off, matter-of-factly, pretty much every year for, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think, close to 20 years at this point. Uh, Finally, finally takes them to the big leagues, and right away the women at the registration ask, uh, desk ask her, "Are your ingredients local?" And she says, "Yeah, they're from the store right down the street from where I live." <laughs> and so, and so, yeah, she's clearly a little out of her depth, but but she's got a big heart, and she, uh, I think, it also becomes a very accurate assessor of what's going on in that room, and what it means, and what the meaning of food ought to be, and. I think the commentary cuts both ways in that scene. I mean, sure, uh, she shows up a little uh, unprepared for the scrutiny her peanut butter bars are going to get, but they come from a place that a lot of the dishes in that contest don't come from, and that's what Eva recognizes. And I love that because Eva really um, takes that to heart, and it represents yeah. family and so before yeah. we we take a break and talk about the queen uh the logger queen of Minnesota, I want to ask a little bit about your definition of family because you know mm. for a lot of us in the LGBT commu- community which I'm in, we feel like we choose our family and in both mm-hmm. of these books, you kind of have an interesting way of defining family because both of your heroines in books don't really come from that traditional family. Tell us a little bit about the inspiration behind that comes from my own life and the life of many people I know out here. And I live in California now, although I grew up in Minnesota. And uh, like I implied at the beginning, I always felt like I belonged to a larger world or belonged to a community that I knew didn't exist in my hometown. And I, I found it here in Southern California. And a family of choice is how I put it. And I'd say that's true for Eva. Eva uh, collects and earns uh, a family of choice that's as profound and meaningful as any definition of family, and it includes some actual family members, but uh, yeah, in both books there aren't a lot in the way of nuclear families. I mean, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know that's true for a lot of people. It's it's certainly certainly true for me right now, and I feel like I wanted to represent that in my books and represent the the, the meaningfulness and the impact of a family of choice and how that family of choice gets assembled. Well, you did that beautifully. I mean, all these women are so sturdy in life. They put one foot in front of the other and get through all the challenges. And I I do think I read somewhere where these books are really a testament to your mom and something you do for her, and I I hope she's looking down. Uh, I I have such a form. All right, we're going to take a quick break, listen to some more Dionne Warwick, and then come back and talk about the Lager Queen in Minnesota before we bring in our registered dietitian to kind of talk us through how we could incorporate some of the Midwest, like those dessert bars, 
and salads mm-hmm. without vegetables and beer into a healthy meal plan for people with diabetes. But right now, we're going to play a song that was first recorded by Dionne Warwick's aunt, Sissy Houston, for her own 1978 album, Think It Over. Dionne's version became an adult contemporary hit in 1980. I don't know what you're eating in, in 1980, Jay Ryan, but you'll let us know in a minute. <laughs> Here's After You, courtesy of Sony Music. Like 
you know, New York, you know, you had Schaefer, you know, just the one you want when you don't want just one. <laughs> and then, uh, and in my part of the, the country, there was Schmidt and Grainbelt and Fitgers and a lot of other labels that have fallen by the wayside. And I wanted to tell that story. Yeah, we had the Beautiful of Club beer. and Genesee and Rochester. Oh, Genesee, of I course. mean, I totally identified with that. And I love that yeah. you talk about the birth of light beer, which, again, yes. like you just yes. said, like you take it all for granted. What made yep. you – I mean, I, I love how Helen – I, I, how much research did you do on light beer and the birth? I just this is such an interesting story about how light beer became light beer. Oh yeah. Well, I wanted to. I ultimately kind of fictionalized the invention of light beer for this novel, but it's based in large part on how it came together in terms of when it came together. People had tr- been trying to make light beer for decades, but it wasn't until the 1970s when there was a consumer base that was. Uh, integrated to the idea of eating and drinking healthy for the first time and, and buying it and being interested in healthier eating or drinking, that light beer could catch on. And with the right pitch and the right pitch people, uh, Miller Lite became a huge success. And it really saved a beer industry that was kind of spiraling down. It was really, uh, what's the word, uh, coagulating, I suppose, into just a handful of companies. I think the year I was born, there were fewer than 100 breweries in the entire country. Now there's well over 100 just in Minnesota. So you're you're talking about a beer industry that was really contracting, and a lot of people made pretty much the same thing. So light beer came along and reinvented the industry. It just reinvigorated the American beer industry. So I wanted to tell that story, and from a woman's point of view, because women invented beer, Women were the ones making beer for thousands of years until money and religion got involved. And I wanted to tell the stories of the women I met in the beer industry now because I didn't meet many. And I thought, you know, uh, as a novelist, you get to create the world you want to exist. Whether if your story is utopian or not, it's a utopian impulse to create a world uh, that you idealize in some way. And so I wanted to write about women who make beer. Because the ones I did meet were not only the most helpful to me in my research, but really inspiring in terms of their own stories. So I wanted to tell a story about female brewers and start each of these characters at a point where they knew nothing about beer, where they had to learn about beer. And so their uh, education and their process of developing their talents as brewers uh, educate the reader as they learn. So I didn't want to throw a whole bunch of beer info at, a <laughs> at the reader. You know, I didn't want this to be like the Moby Dick of beer where every other chapter is a list of IPAs or something. So the reader is only going to find out you. as much about <laughs> This is why I um, wanted you on the show because I felt <laughs> like the female characters in your books give great inspiration to the women and men in our Diva Beta community. And we're running out of time, but I want to talk oh, no about problem. Edith because I feel like mm-hmm. she encapsulates the survivor. You, you yeah. kind of, unfortunately, like throw her under the bus multiple times in her life. She oh. gets kind of, you know, caught up in doing things a certain way, and then the younger group comes in, and she's still doing things the same way. And then I don't want to give anything away, but it's such a beautiful <laughs> journey. And, you know, yeah. I want my listeners to check out both of these books because they are really about strong women who are, who are I don't want to say, they're not, uh, they don't have egos, they're not bragging, they just kind of put one foot in front of the other, and they do 
in the end of the book, so there's lovely, uh, you know, happily ever after. But her story is just so empowering. I want to, I, I do want to just come back to in our final moments about the inspiration and why the need to create these strong women. And of course, you just mentioned like these. Uh, there's so few women in in the brewery industry, and yet you, you know, you found a way to give us those women and show those stories. I thought it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and, and as I mentioned before, uh, briefly, they're based on women I knew growing up in Minnesota. Uh, Edith is based in large part on my grandmother, who did work in the kitchen of a nursing home for decades and would bring in special treats for uh, the, people that, <laughs> the people that lived there and brought my brother and I in to visit the uh, residents who didn't ever have visitors. And through my grandmother's kind-heartedness, I became integrated to a uh, a, a, a whole wonderful society in that nursing home, and I'd always wanted to write about that and write about my grandmother's really understated, you know, un, unself-congratulatory, don't toot your own horn kind of attitude, how she would just sort of quietly go about helping like dozens of people every week without ever drawing attention to it. And I thought, you know, I want to write about that kind of person. That's exactly the kind of person I want to read about right now, someone who's kind and helpful and non-self-congratulatory and just puts one foot in front of the other, as you put it, and lives her life. And I wasn't finding that kind of character a lot in the books I was reading, so I had to, had to write her in mind. <laughs> Are you working on anything now that we could give a sneak to uh, uh, anything to tell our listeners about before oh, we let yeah, you go? I just finished uh, my first draft of my third book, which is set in the restaurant industry, uh, set in two Two, two different styles of family restaurants. One, a supper club, which is kind of a Wisconsin style of restaurant, and then the other, a kind of a, a Perkins or Shoney's or <laughs> Waffle House sort of chain, uh, but one that has a distinctly Midwestern uh, bent to it. So about uh, two restaurant families and how they become integrated. Uh, yeah, so more Midwest, more food, more uh, good common folks and, and uh, uh, funny situations. Uh, so yeah, I'm, uh, once again, I uh, I don't think that the apple's falling too far from the tree again, but I I hope you don't mind, Max. <laughs> no, I love it. And if you when that comes up, put us back on your um, on your list to come and talk about it because I I love celebrating you and supporting you. I think you're fabulous. And again, I want everyone to check out the Longer Queen of Minnesota and the Kitchens oh, of the Great Midwest. We're gonna jump right into our talk with our educator. Because I don't know about you, but I'm hungry now. So I want to bring in uh, one of my favorite registered dietitians and certified diabetes educators to kind of break this down. She participated in last year's Diabetes Escape Room Experience, gluten, right here in New York City. And uh, Rachel Stahl, I want to take, I want to go right there because I'm now I want a beer and I want to have the dessert <laughs> bars and the steak and potatoes. And the question that Jay Ryan and I both want to know is. Can I, can I eat like a Midwestern and manage my diabetes? That's a great question and great intro to our conversation. Um, pleasure to be here today to, to talk with both of you and, and the community out there listening. Um, you know, I always take the approach of, of moderation. You know, I'm not here to tell people you can't have this, you can't have that, only eat this, only eat that. You know, it's all about finding, you know, how foods fit. And I think, you know, we just heard from – J. Ryan Strada, which is, it was so great to listen to about, you know, the connection that culture and tradition has with, um, you know, with certain foods and beverages. So it's really about 
moderation. What is moderation, though, Rachel? Because it's thrown around a lot. So what does that mean? Like, how, how do you define it individually? Do you, you know, how would I interpret moderation? That's a great question. Um, one tool that I like to use a lot when thinking about moderation is really just a visual of looking at your plate, right? We're all, most of us are, you know, eating off of our plate, and I always like to use the idea of, of half of the plate of those vegetables. Now, it might not be those creamy mashed potatoes. Those would really fit in the, you know, the more starchy category, which would make up a quarter of the plate. So, um, you know, the ideas of moderation is half of your plate, vegetables, quarter protein, which could be, you know, the, the chicken, fish, vegetarian options, beef, and then a quarter of your plate with, um, with the starch. So, you know, when, you're, when Jay, Ryan, and I are at the family barbecue, like he was saying, and my aunt um, – Francis used to make her ambrosia salad, which didn't have a vegetable in it, like he was saying. Where does that fit in my plate? <laughs> because it had the little marshmallows, and it had the coconut shavings, and it had the mandarin oranges. I mean, you know, let's, I, I'm just curious. Like, you know, like you were saying, that's part of my history. I don't want to insult my Aunt Francis, so how can I enjoy an ambrosia salad? You know, I would say you could fit it onto onto the plate, um, Stay hydrated, drink a lot of water, and know that it's just one meal. You know, it's not that it's going to be the everyday thing unless you're, you're able to barbecue with, with the whole group every night So you know, and every day. So it's the idea of, you know, being okay if, it's, if it, you don't fit that moderation goal. You know, we're not all perfect. There is no black and white when it comes to healthy eating. Uh, so keeping that in mind, too, I think is, is key. And how do you help someone who's um... – a red, a big red meat eater, roast beef, grilled steak, hamburgers, meatloaf, uh, they're all part of the Midwestern diet, typically, I would think. So how do you help someone kind of dial that down a little bit? Do you have tricks to help recommend, you know, to still be able to enjoy the flavor of that animal protein, if you like, but still be able to manage it with your diabetes? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there's really great options in terms of um, being able to shop for different sources of lean cuts of beef. Um, you know, you might find some ground beef looking for like an 80-20 label, which is showing you that the first number could be the percent of, of the beef muscle and, and the second is the percentage of the beef fat. So looking for, you know, a different percentage that would give you more of the lean beef rather than less. Um, I have people that often will use meat, but maybe add if they're making like a meatloaf or, or meatballs, adding some lentils or some beans, you know, uh, with a food processor, to be added to that to, you know, cut down on a little bit of the beef, but add some good nutrients like fiber um, to, and some good vitamins and minerals to balance it. Um, so really, you know, also like just cutting, trimming the fat a little bit or looking for meats that don't have as much marbling um, could also be a good way to cut down on some of that um, unhealthy fat. Great advice. All right, so uh, let's talk about what's going, right, going on right now with a lot of our community and sheltering in. Uh, his his book is all about beer, and there's a lot of people out there who are enjoying a lot of alcohol in sheltering in, especially beer. So tell us a little bit about what does beer ha what is the effect of beer on my blood sugars? Is light beer better than regular beer? And uh, is there a way to incorporate either or both into my into my uh, diabetes meal plan? Okay, all right, I'll try to answer all of them. Remind me if I, if I didn't hit on one of the questions here. Um, so how does beer affect blood sugar? So 
beverages like beer, like wine, champagne, have carbohydrates. Um, so that will raise your blood sugar. Um, and in moderation, it will for sure. Um, interestingly, if you have too much excess beer and too much of it can actually lower your blood sugar. Um, so it's really important to, you know, if you are drinking to consume in moderation and often having the beer, if you're going to enjoy it with food to help, you know, keep your blood sugar um, well balanced. And I think that's a really key thing to think about. So it will raise your blood sugar. If you have it part of a meal, it could slow down the rise of the blood sugar because you have food components of protein and fat and fiber that will kind of just slow the overall absorption. Um, so definitely, you know, Try not to drink on an empty stomach is key. In terms of is light beer better than regular beer, you know, I get this question a lot uh, from patients. And I think, you know, not to say it's better than the other. It really depends on, on their health goals. You know, if they're looking to really focus on losing weight and they, they got to have their beer here and there, um, you know, if it's a regular here and there, that's okay. You know, light beer certainly has less calories and carbs. So if they, you know, are sticking to a specific carb counting plan or looking – for different ways to cut calories, I think it's certainly an option. I know it also depends on taste a bit too. So, um, you know, it really depends on the person. Great advice. All right. So, you know, uh, the last thing I want to do is turn the COVID-19 into 19 extra pounds. And when I read a book like <laughs> this that is so focused, Rachel, I know I'm not alone in this. It makes me want to eat. So there I am reading and eating. And so how – you know, I know a lot of people out there are kind of worried about uh, if they've gained weight through this whole uh, sheltering and experience. What is the advice you could give them? And then I, I want to talk about one specific diet plan after you just talk to us a little bit how to maybe curve out of this kind of lifestyle that we've gotten ourselves into with sheltering in. Yeah, it's a great point. I think, you know, no one has really felt, you know, have have these new feelings around what's going on and how to deal with it. And oftentimes, you know, those emotional feelings are quickly tied to food and can really um, inhibit someone's health goals if they're really trying to monitor their food intake. So I know it's really been a challenge for a lot of people in light of all the stress and concern, um, you know, around COVID. So I think what's really important, number one, is self-care. I think that's something that quickly gets forgotten and put by the wayside and affects so many factors of our life, and notably our health in terms of diet and exercise, which really go hand in hand. Um, so I think self-care, you know, being more mindful around your eating habits, I think, you know, we could look at this time of, oh, I, you know, put on all this, being so hard on ourselves. We have to really lift that, you know, barrier a little bit and really focus on moving forward. And I think, um, you know, that's a really big thing to to take in and taking it one day at a time, one meal at a time. Um, you know, starting with small steps that I found has been really successful for my patients of, you know, maybe it's one adding one extra serving of vegetables with, with lunch, you know, you know, maybe not having dessert every night, like small little goals that over time really build up the confidence to help them really stick to, you know, a new eating behavior. Do you ever find that a lot of people, I'm going to generalize people, so don't send me Twitter uh, rants, but I'm sure they will. Do you ever feel that a lot of people, specifically with type 2 diabetes, really focus on food unintentionally, and then the thing is they want to take their mind off of it, but because 
we're kind of like right now, you know, you go to the one of your socializations is to go to the grocery store. How do you talk someone through that? You know, getting out of the cycle. Maybe they don't, or they don't want to think about it. And so we all know that uh, planning ahead is important with diabetes. But you know what I'm talking about? Like some people are really just everything is about food. What's the next meal? What am I going to, you know, and how do you begin to adjust that in a way that works with your diabetes? I think that's a, such a great point. You know, food is tied so much to our daily life. I mean, at a minimum, we're having three meals a day, snacks, what's, what's our next meal, when's our next meal, you know, how do I need to prepare it, how much do I need to buy with food? You know, it's so much ingrained in, in our day, so I can totally understand how, you know, it can be really difficult if we're thinking about food and, uh, you know, that it's taking up so much of the time. And I think part of it, when you say about, you know, breaking the cycle, getting out of it, it's it's thinking about food as, as nourishment, you know, and I really like to use that as a way to think about food that's really going to, especially more than ever in light of these times, food is such a key factor for prevention, for healthy immune system of eating, you know, fresh foods with vitamins, minerals, and fiber. So really tying into understanding the patients, what, are, what is their motivation around their eating habits or, you know, their health goals, and really kind of getting into the deep side of, of what from, you know, from within them. And changing behavior is extremely hard, um, especially as we age. So recognizing that, you know, it takes time and, and being patient with the process is really key. That's the last question I wanted to ask you, Rachel. I'm glad you brought that up because tonight, you know, uh, Dion Moore works long career is inspiring us to talk about secrets of living longer with diabetes. And obviously, you know, an all-or-one approach to a diet isn't going to work for everybody. So I'm wondering, like, as we see people living longer with diabetes, of course they have to enjoy their lives. And going back to, like, the very beginning, like, you know, uh, the Midwestern traditions, and like you mentioned, our family history, the ways we gather, certain foods are always being prepared. How, what can you tell people out there who are trying at a, you know, most of us are over 40 who listen to this podcast, how they could still have a healthy life and somehow find a way to work with a great registered dietitian like yourself and find ways to enjoy the, that culinary, the culinary part of life, aspect of living. So to really kind of, you know, make that connection, you know, around healthy eating, if I, if I understand your question correctly, let me know, um, you know, is about thinking of, you know, each meal and going back to that plate planner of, you know, getting different vegetables of any, you know, all different types so that really fit into different people's cultures and, and habits, uh, you know, filling the plate with that, you know, with your starch and always trying to go for brown rice or quinoa, you know, more starchier grains. And lean proteins, but recognizing that it you know, doesn't always have to be that way and that we're all human um, and keeping that in the back of our heads. And certainly I strongly recommend if people are considering making changes to their diet or really looking to you know, succeed in different health goals around nutrition is to find a registered dietitian. Um, and you could do that by going to eatright.org. Um, you could search by your location um, zip by zip code and, and find a registered dietitian who could really work with you to hone in on you as an individual. And I think, you know, you had mentioned that before. It's so much as an individualized approach that we work on with people to really um, find what works for them. So it's, there is no one blanket diet, one blanket statement to say about, um, 
you know, what's the best diet for, for diabetes. It really depends on the person. Now, there are some eating patterns that have been found to be helpful. If you're, if it would be helpful for me to share that. Yeah. Well, I think we'll bring you back to share that. We've got, um, I'm so excited that our next guest is coming up. But, Rachel, thank you again for helping us master the menu of a kitchen from the great Midwest tonight. We're going to bring you back to talk about food plans on another show. This is fantastic, and I, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. I'm so glad we did. I'm so sorry we didn't get to do Clued In this year. So tune in next I year, everybody, to see Rachel here in New York. All right, well, you Next know, year. our diva inspiration, Dionne Warwick, is best known as a solo artist. But her two biggest hits, or her number one hits, excuse me, were collaborations. One of those was Then Came You, which she was saying with the spinners, and then That's What Friends Are For, which she sang with Gladys Knight, Stevie Wonder, and Elton John. As Fozzie Thornton mentioned earlier, she is related to Whitney Houston. Dionne Warwick's aunt is Sissy Houston, and uh, her cousin is Whitney Houston. Here's an up-tempo song by Dionne Warwick, who she co-wrote with uh, her aunt, Sissy Houston, entitled Out of My Hands, courtesy of Sony Music. I just took a dance break. This is your host, Mr. Divinetic. You know, tonight we're talking about living long and healthy lives with diabetes with inspiration from Dionne Warwick. Well, let's face it, as you get older, technology keeps changing. It's, it's kind of a nightmare, right? I mean, uh, we had dial phones, and then, we, and then we had digital phones, and now we have iPhones, and there's something new all the time. How do you deal with the chaos of diabetes technology, especially when so many people are telling you it could help you. Well, guess what? I have a new friend. She's joining the show for the first time. She is a diabetes care and education specialist who focuses on digital health. She's the owner of Deborah Greenwood Consulting and recently started working for Medical Science Liaison at Dexcom. She also, I love this because I love this organization, she was a 2015 president of AADE. Please welcome to the show, Deborah Greenwood. Hi, Deb. Hi, Max. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're delighted to have you on the show tonight. This is an honor to have you come on and, and walk us through this. You know, this is really complicated because so many older people get diagnosed with diabetes, and so much is available with technology, but there are a lot of tech-phobic people out there. So help us make some sense of this tonight, um, first by just telling us what the heck is diabetes technology and why would we care about it? <laughs> Well, that's a great question, because I think when people think about diabetes technology, often they just think about devices like a glucose meter or a, a CGM, a continuous glucose meter or a pump. 
But when I think about technology, I think of it as being so much more. I think of it as a way to manage care. And as we'll talk about, it's kind of what's sort of happening in this mode with with, uh, COVID-19. But when I, what we call it is technology enabled diabetes care and education. And I'd love to share those a little bit of information about that with you, if that's okay. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) So to really have a technology enabled care and education system, we need four key elements. First of all, is the simplest thing, we need communication, right? We need, there needs to be a way to have the person with diabetes and their healthcare team talk to each other. And that can be as simple as a phone, or it can be now a text or video chat or a patient portal. Uh, and then we have to be sharing and analyzing what we fancy call patient-generated health data. But all that really is is the data that we generate from diabetes devices. Mostly it's glucose, but it could also be blood pressure. It could be activity trackers. So basically we're talking to each other, we're sharing data, and now what do we do with the data? We, and this is, this is the, the sort of the sweet spot of technology is that we can use these data to tailor education and care to the individual. So we can move away from kind of the cookie cutter education and care, like, okay, everybody who looks like this gets this. But it's where we use individual data to then help people determine what changes need to be made. And so that's our fourth thing, it's feedback, right? So then we communicate around the data we have to say, okay, do we need to change medication? Do we need to make a change to an eating plan like you were just talking about, or maybe an activity? And so I want people to not be afraid of technology, but to think about the value that technology can bring to help make their diabetes manageable and and make it work for themselves and individualized. Well, I know there's a lot of people out there who are afraid to go to the doctor right now because we've heard on every news program and newspaper that people living with diabetes are at higher risk of getting the virus. So let's just walk this through with, like, telecommunications, right, because that's one of the things that even my doctors are sending me notes about having a teleconference. So uh, you could set up a Zoom meeting or Skype or even FaceTime, I guess, to talk to your doctor. How would you walk me through that? so that I, you know, we have a better example of the four key things you were talking about. Yeah, so, you know, for years, I mean, my, I don't even know how many, 10, 15 years at least, people have been trying to get what's happening today because of COVID happening. You know, people have been trying to get reimbursement for um, having remote converse, conversations, remote consultation, and it took a pandemic Uh, to have it happen. So I think, you know, if we can take a positive thing away from this crisis that we're in is that I think people are seeing that it's working. And so hopefully when this is over, the benefits that happen because of this technology and telehealth and remote care will stay with us. Um, But so many people are offering these remote visits and I actually had one, my husband had one. Um, And so a couple things, right? So you need to figure out how you're going to communicate. You know, typically your healthcare provider is going to tell you that. Um, and one of the things that Medicare did is they that you could only use used to only be able to use very specific HIPAA compliant 
um, uh, platforms, but because not everybody has access to those during this COVID crisis, they've changed some of that. So there's many different ways people can communicate. When I communicated, I actually had to go into my, uh, my chart, which is like a patient portal, and they sent me a link that I had to click on. And when I clicked on the link, then they put me into this virtual waiting room where I waited like you normally do. And I think I waited 30 minutes to talk to my healthcare provider, but that was okay. Um, and then there was the, you know, the, the face-to-face. He was wherever he was. I don't really know where he was, but we, we chatted. Now, if you have diabetes and you want to share your data, that would be something you'd want to check in ahead of time, you know, because nor- typically people bring their data in in person and share it with the, the, the healthcare provider in person. So you want to check and say, is there a way that I can share my data with you ahead of time so that you have it virtually? Um, you know, some people may already be doing that, and some glucose meters or pumps or CGM have their own systems where you can share your data. Um, if, if you don't have that, there's uh, one particular uh, company that I like that's called Tidepool. It's a nonprofit and it's free for everybody. So you can actually upload your data to this Tidepool system and then the clinician on the back end can then download your data. So you don't need to be, have to um, see, the, see them in person to do that or have a hard copy of your data. So that's just one option. There's many, many options. Um, and then there together, you'll look at your data, analyze your data, have a discussion about it, and, you know, basically have the same type of experience. It's just that you'll be doing it all virtually. Uh, a lot of people also have access to patient portals uh, through their electronic health record, and not everybody has taken advantage of that. So I might suggest that if you haven't, you know, sign in and see what that's all about. It's a great way to send quick and easy messages to your healthcare team, you know, get your prescriptions reordered, um, check your own labs when they come in. So I think it's a great time to be like a pioneer in this whole technology world and try to learn as much as we can from it. And hopefully the benefits will stay with us. And, and what does it mean for an educator or for the, the other side of the table, the medical profession? Because this isn't just a challenge for me uh, not to be able to go to my actual in-person appointment. This is a challenge for the other, the health professional. And I'm just curious, like, how are they adapting? And uh, since we do have a lot of healthcare professionals who listen to this podcast, what are you know some of the? Are there any keys that you'd like to point out for them as well? Yeah, well, there are a lot of. Um diabetes care and education specialists that I am colleagues with and friends with that I know that are um, using telehealth and are, you know, doing these services, many of them from their homes. Uh, Again, as I had said earlier, Medicare relaxed a lot of their rules and you used to not be able to bill for that. Uh, And so those services weren't often provided because, you know, healthcare providers need to staff their offices and need to earn, earn a living as well. So now this, some of those barriers have been taken away. So a lot of educators are learning and trying to figure out how they can provide these services uh, via telehealth. And so there are resources out there. Um, The Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, that used to be AADE, they've been doing a fantastic job with webinars. They have a website that's devoted to helping diabetes care and education specialists launch telehealth or remote monitoring programs. Lots of other organizations have resources. So I think there's, um, a, there's a lot of support and there's a lot of opportunity. I would say if, if you're an educator and you haven't been doing remote monitoring or, you know, reviewing 
those glucose data or other uh, data in between office visits, this is a really great time to do that. There's a great paper out there um, written by Levine, and they call technology a, a new part of the healthcare team, right? So think of this as not something that might, quote, take the place of a healthcare provider or take the place of kind of that communication, but it's, it's actually part of the team that helps enable that technology-enabled feedback loop that I was talking about. And so if you can think about like future state, instead of only going to your, see your healthcare provider or diabetes care and education specialist like every three, six or 12 months, you can actually engage with them on an ongoing basis and you can talk about how you're doing. You can talk about your uh, changes you want to make. You can have them review glucose data on an ongoing basis and potentially really improve um, how people feel and improve their outcomes. And so I, I think that once people start engaging, I don't think people are going to want to go back to the old fashioned way of uh, engaging in care. No, I think it's interesting. All right, I want to uh, talk a little bit uh, now about peer-to-peer -peer education because, you know, there's, uh, what do they say? There's 3 million, 30 million people on unemployment now. They might not be able to pay their rent. They, some of them can't even pay for their next meal. And I'm just wondering, like, uh, I know we didn't talk about this before, but where, you know, like, is there anything out there for people who don't have insurance or are struggling right now with how they would even get to go if they got an appointment with their doctor or even did in, engaged in telehealth, how they would pay for it. Are there alternatives out there, and do you think peer education would be one of them? So I know there are lots of um, assistance programs available. Um, I don't know them all off the top of my head, but, like, I know, for example, if someone is um, – using uh, a, a Dexcom CGM they, and, and they lost their job so they don't have health insurance. There's an assistance program where there's like a set fee that's, that's reduced that people can apply for. I know there's uh, insulin companies are having similar things where they're providing services. Um, I know some uh, educators that I've talked to, their healthcare system, because they're not, they weren't in a place to bill, they didn't really know hadn't had the, the, the steps in place to bill, that they were just going to do education at no cost through telehealth. So I'm, I don't know all that's out there, but I'm sure there are opportunities. In terms of peer-to-peer, -peer, so I'm always a fan of peer-to-peer -peer, uh, education and support, regardless of what we're going through now. I think it's always been a great opportunity. And mainly for what I was saying, that you people see their doctor once, twice, three, maybe if they're lucky, you know, four times a year. Um, but they're managing their diabetes 24-7 on their own. So engaging in peer-to-peer -peer support, I think, is something that people, you know, can get benefit to do all the time. But right now, if people really are lacking access, you know, and cannot see a provider, I think it's a great time. And there's so many different peer support opportunities. AADE, uh, Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists, has a, um, a page about peer support and lists many different um, places that people can go and engage and there's different types, you know, for different, um, there's diabetes sisters, for example, that's, you know, mainly for women or it, actually it's also for spouses, but um, there are um, beyond type one and beyond type two. And uh, 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 of course, diabetic, there's all sorts of things. So you can go to the website and, and look at the peer support uh, page and you can read about it. And there's many, many people that are out there that would be, happy to engage with you and talk with you, especially during this challenging time. 
I agree. I mean, I'm, and I'm so happy to be working with you on your support for the organization as well, and, and we'll see where that's going. But uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and being part of this podcast. I want to thank all our guests for being on the show, and especially thank you for tuning in, listeners. Don't miss Diva Better today. Hi, baby's late night podcast in June when we salute members of the LGBTQ plus community with music from the Indigo Girls on Tuesday, June 9th. 2020. Visit our Facebook page for daily inspiration and try your luck at our Carb Kitty Game videos on Diva Beck's YouTube channel. Remember, every diva has an entourage, and I'm so glad to be part of yours. Uh, let's stay happy and healthy together. We're going to close the show with Dion Warwick's uh, Grammy-winning hit from the 1979 album, Dion, I'll Never Love This Way Again. Yeah.